Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the HPO podcast. Today, I am joined by a return guest, Brody Sharp. Brody joined me for episode 240 of HPO, where we dove into a variety of things, including strength work for endurance athletes, proper form and mechanics, injury prevention through proper footwear, and much more. I brought Brody back this time to dive a bit deeper into some of the principles that he highlights in his new ebook. Included in this conversation is injury avoidance, what to do if you do acquire an injury, what we do and don't actually know about certain supplementary activities like stretching, foam rolling, mobility, etc., and how to use training load to properly stress and recover from both your workouts and injuries. If you are healthy and training, you can apply some of the strategies to stay that way. If you are like me and are currently working back from an injury, this episode may be especially timely. As I continue to navigate a return to structured training after injuring my right ankle, I look forward to implementing some of Brody's strategies throughout the process. Brody's ebook and details about it are available in the show notes if you want to get an even deeper glance at what he recommends. You can also check out all the content he has available at runsmarter.online. If you enjoy this podcast and wish to support either monetarily or by sharing, liking, and subscribing, please head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO for options, which include joining my Patreon page, making a quick one-time donation, which includes options to avoid the need of joining a third-party platform, or simply subscribing to HPO on your favorite podcast listening or viewing platform. You can also support HPO through the show sponsors. Details on all the discounts and promotions from HPO show sponsors can be found at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. That link is in the show notes. This episode's sponsors are my friends at Element and Inside Tracker. Element is offering listeners of HPO a free sample pack of their top-notch electrolyte product by simply paying for shipping. My personal Element routine includes half a pack of the chocolate flavor in my morning coffee. I will also mix some of their other flavors with the water I drink throughout the day or during some of my workouts. I find that one of their packets mixes quite well into about two liters of water, and that works really well for me. Since each packet boasts an impressive 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, a little bit does go a long way. I typically reach for the watermelon flavor for my water throughout the day, but the last couple of weeks, I have actually been dipping into my pack of citrus and orange a bit just to kind of give those flavors a shot. Uh, I've also been doing a bit more traveling recently, which in my opinion is where Element really shines. I can just throw a couple of those packs into my travel bag and I have it available while on the road. Or I can stash one in my pocket for a longer run where I know I'm going to need to re-up on water along the way. It makes it easy and convenient to add those electrolytes to it. So check out their flavors and get your sample pack at drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Or by simply heading over to my show sponsor page at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. 
All this can also be found in the show notes. My friends at Inside Tracker offer a great option for easy to access blood panels. They have a full range of blood panels that can give you an overview of how you are doing across the board or simply track and adjust specific areas of concern. If you are someone who enjoys being active and or productive and are curious about whether your current nutrition routine is giving you what you need, Inside Tracker can shine a spotlight on that as well as eliminate a scenario where you are addressing things with expensive products that you are already getting enough of through your normal diet. The backend education at Inside Tracker can also help you increase areas of concern through diet by coaching you through what options you have through foods to boost certain micronutrients, as well as highlight the foods you're already eating that are highest in a specific nutrient. Inside Tracker is offering a big 25% discount on their full list of products to all HPO listeners. So simply plug in the promo code HPO Pro 25. That's all capitals H P O P R O 25 while checking out for any order at insidetracker.com. All of those links and promos can also be found in the show notes and at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Thanks, but thanks, Brody, for taking some time and hopping on the show. Thanks for having me on. I had a great time last time. I was really engaging chat and we covered a whole bunch. Um, last episode I was on. So yeah, looking forward to diving in again. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I think we, we did quite a bit on some strength work for runners, if I'm not mistaken. And then I think we touched on some like just mechanics and form quite a bit as well. And in terms of what some, someone should be looking for and in terms of like running posture and all that stuff. Yeah. And I think, um, shoes like orthotics, yeah. Running form. Yeah. Like we, we just covered a whole basis. It was really fun. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, clearly we didn't cover enough because you're back on here <laughs> for another episode and I'm excited to, uh, touch on a couple topics, uh, that maybe we touched on a little bit in the other one, but didn't do as deep of a dive into and just get kind of your take on some of that. And, uh, yeah, just, uh, dive into some stuff. So, um, you know, one thing we were just chatting about a bit before we hit record here was uh, just r- running and kind of cross training when injured. Cause I think a lot of times when uh, especially the more type a versions of us runners will get hurt and we know intuitively that that means there's going to at least be a reduction in the workload that we were doing on the running side of things or the, the preferred activity we should say. Uh, and you you know you you want to do the right things to get that healed up and maybe correct some weaknesses and i think when you remove the running program a lot of times there's a drive to replace it with something so i'm always curious like as the runner looks to fill that void with something what are some practical like proactive things they can be doing because i do worry sometimes where you get these scenarios where okay i'm hurt I'm going to do this instead and said alternative activity is slowing down their recovery and they need to actually like do something completely different. Uh, so I think this will be kind of a fun topic to chat about. Yeah, for sure. I think once a runner is injured, there's the, it, it usually follows with a lot of confusion, usually follows with a lot of trial and error. And sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes it's followed with a lot of stubbornness or just maybe just, trying to ignore the injury happening altogether and they continue running on and it gets worse um, or they do the total opposite depending on their personality type sometimes they just completely rest because they're scared to kind of 
flare things up um, where a lot of these examples and a lot of cases, the answer somewhere kind of lies somewhere in the middle. And because it depends on the injury, depends on the severity, depends on the behavior of symptoms, wildly fluctuates. And so um, the actual tailored advice would be different for every individual. But I like to talk in principles and like universal kind of lessons so that you can use universal principles no matter what the injury is, no matter what the severity is, you can just have this to fall back on. And I think if we were discussing injuries and can I run, can I not run, should I cross train, how can I be proactive, we first need to go back and look at, I think I touched a little bit last time I was on, around your adaptation zone and making sure that we find your adaptation zone and work within that as often as we can in order for you to start rebuilding and getting stronger. And a lot of people need to realize that every muscle, tendon, ligament has a certain capacity, has a certain load capacity before it starts breaking down. Like we can, most runners can run for say 15 minutes without getting injured. But if some runners get to, you know, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, it's can surpass the threshold of what those tissues can can tolerate and so somewhere just below that limit is your adaptation zone and we want to like train within that several times in order to in order for the body to start triggering this adaptation and getting stronger adapting more to being a runner handling those loads and you become a better runner because of it you're able to withstand more load and so when it comes to injury back to our like initial um theoretical kind of scenario if someone does get injured if they have a sore ankle or a sore knee or a sore hip the the structures become sensitive and they're unable to tolerate the same amount of load that it once could tolerate but it now has a new adaptation zone it's usually a lot lower than what it was pre-injury but we need to again find where that adaptation zone is and it's a it's a zone it's a range it's like a um, it's an amount of load that doesn't increase symptoms, doesn't flare you up, but can still be stimulating enough to build you up and get stronger. And mm-hmm. so if someone goes for a run and they've overdone things and they've got a sore knee and they were running, say, 10 miles and they try again to, to go for a run with, with this infrastructure, their new adaptation zone might be three miles, it might be two miles, it might be just like a walk run for 20 minutes or so. Um, The tricky part is when you are injured, finding where that zone currently is, finding where that adaptation zone currently is. And it does either require a lot of trial and error or a lot of patience or finding a coach or finding a health professional that has seen a lot of these cases before and has the better educated guess of where you need to start. And then you just slowly build up from there. And so that's like the general principle that you need to follow that applies to any injury. I think with stress fractures, usually the exception to the rule that requires a long duration of offload, but for the vast majority of injuries that are out there, running related injuries, you're just following this simple loading adaptation zone kind of principle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think some, when you put it in a perspective like that, I really like that because a lot of runners, especially if they're following some sort of plan, are going to be familiar with the idea of training load where there's a certain amount I can tolerate right now and I need to stay within the parameters of that 
until I can kind of make a gain or make a leap forward a little bit. And that's going to be like incremental throughout the process of a, a well-constructed training plan to the point where then at the end point, you can tolerate whatever intensity and time you're looking to do at whatever race distance you're, you're targeting. So when you think of it from an injury standpoint, it makes a lot of sense where you had this, this per, at least perceived or idea of where your training load was now something got aggravated. So at least that area of your body takes a step back in terms of the, what it can tolerate. So then the next step is just kind of determining, well, what is that training load within that, that troublesome area and how do I either stay off of, or minimize the impact on that area while still being able to do whatever activity it is. And it's probably going to depend on what type of issue you have, or is it negatively impacting everything or an area that's going to get, get touched a little more frequently, no matter what you do, in which case you maybe have to step away altogether for, for a time frame. Yeah. And there's a few principles here that like people might not be expecting because I know it's human nature once people are injured that they want to say miss running altogether. Say, let me just have a week off and let me just make sure that this, the body like heals itself and then I'll just get back to running. I should be fine. But what we were talking about before, if these structures, if the tissues are quite sensitive, they can no longer tolerate the same amount of loads. It's temporarily weaker. Um, like I say, that that adaptation zone drops. And if you combat that with complete rest, then it's just going to continue to diminish. The capacity is going to continue to diminish. So a lot of people get quite stuck because they try to return to running and that injured site is just really weak. It's like really, it's unable to tolerate a lot of load. And so you might as well try and be proactive while it is a little bit injured by just doing maybe low amounts of running or just maybe some strength training or maybe some cross training in order to preserve as much capacity as you can while it's in this state. And sometimes that just means sometimes you can do cross training. Sometimes you can do low amounts of running, but we really need to interpret your symptoms either during that exercise, after that exercise and the next day to interpret, okay, have I, have I successfully negotiated that dosage, whatever it may be, whether it is the, maybe it's squats, maybe it's lunges, maybe it's the rower, maybe it's doing a spin class, uh, maybe it's going swimming, maybe it's just doing a walk run program. You just need to take those snapshots of those symptoms during the exercise, after the exercise, the next day. And if there's no dramatic flare up of symptoms and everything's remaining relatively stable, you can you can kind of assume or interpret that you're negotiating um, pretty successfully those sort of dosages. Yeah. And would you say that using like pain as a guide in that would be like a, a valuable tool as like when you're doing whatever amount of activity you're able to get away with, if it's it, or maybe I should rephrase it because there's going to, at least in my experience, when I've had injuries in the past, there's usually like at least a sensation of difference from the injured area compared to the other side, especially when it's something that has got, you know, you got two of, so like if it's your foot, your ankle, your calf, your knee or something like that, uh, you know, when you injure those things, maybe I can go to run, I can sort of feel it, but it doesn't really flare up until a certain amount of time. Do I want to stop before like that flare up or is it bad that I'm even noticing a difference between those two areas? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I'll definitely use pain as a guide. Uh, I sometimes like to use a pain scale out of 10, but that's completely subjective. Mm -hmm. Um, It depends on the runner, but definitely pain as a symptom. Sometimes with some injury stiffness also as a symptom, like they might have knees are a good example of that. Maybe the next morning, there's not a lot of pain, but there's a lot of stiffness and that will persist for like the first half hour of the morning. Um, That's something that some people should be aware of depending on the injury. But going back to this question, if someone is injured, we can poke into a little bit of pain and you're actually more proactive. You're actually going to recover quicker if you are allowing yourself to poke into a little bit of pain instead of just trying to achieve pain-free altogether because you'll, you'll probably end up underloading your body throughout the first couple of weeks, which we want to be as proactive as we can. We want to poke into a little bit more and be a little bit more proactive so that we can preserve or build upon like your load tolerance. And so, yeah, I like to say anywhere below a four out of 10 pain is acceptable. So like a zero, one, two, three out of 10, but then people say, well, I interpret pain probably different. I have a high pain threshold. A lot of people say that. Um, How do I know? And so I like to put a few, a, a few like descriptive kind of logos upon those and just like you were saying, if if you're running and you're noticing it, you're noticing it different to the other side, that's totally fine. You're injured. You're going to expect that anyway. And your brain is actually going to draw more awareness to that injured side as well and kind of have this a little bit of hypervigilance, a little bit of a, a focus on that area to be like, how's it going? Is it getting worse? Like, what what's the pain like? How do I feel when I contact the ground? Like the body's just going to um, be hyper-focused around that area. But yeah, noticing pain is totally okay, but you need to also ask yourself, am I apprehensive to land on that side? Am I apprehensive to push off that side? Am I slightly limping? Do, is, my, um, is my stride, does my stride feel even on each side? Does As I'm contacting the ground, does it sound the same on each side? Do I have the same confidence to contact the ground and push off? Uh, because first of all, if you're limping, it's too severe. You shouldn't be running if you are noticing that you're limping. If you're noticing like an apprehension to kind of contact the ground and you find that you're maybe trying to be a little bit more softer or trying to change, like if you're a heel striker and you're trying to make sure it's a bit more of a um, flat foot or you're maybe trying to contact on the forefoot or change your contact differently. Um, And then again, with your push off, if you find you're trying to push off differently to protect that area, I would say your injury is probably a little bit too severe to run at that speed or run at that duration. And yeah, you, noticing the pain is okay, but we should still be confident on that, on that injury. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of good, good things in there. And I think one of them is uh, when, when you're running, I, I hear this expression being used and it, it, sometimes it takes a little bit to maybe think about, but if you're a runner and you've felt this, you know, what they're saying is like, there's a difference between, like a hard workout where you start to feel like, oh, my legs are feeling heavier and it's taking more effort to move my body versus this uh, idea of like, I've got this sharp pain running up the side of my leg every time I plant my foot down. And then, like you said, I, I really like that descriptor of if you catch yourself being hesitant to bear weight and push off, then you're probably going to be, you know, doing more damage than good. And, uh, one thing I think is 
kind of interesting within that too is uh, runners typically get familiar or comfortable enough with whatever gait they have or whatever, just, you know, whatever form that their body kind of naturally does within the, you know, the proper mechanics that it almost becomes intuitive to the point where you're not really thinking about it, or it becomes a thing where instead of thinking about it, you're doing it. And unless you like cue yourself, you're probably going to have it in the back of your mind, but then you have a little bit of an injury or something flare up. Now, all of a sudden you're thinking about every step. So a lot of times when I'm working with folks and they're curious about this sort of stuff, I ask them that I'm like, do you find yourself fixating on like you, this, the problem area every time you take a step, or is it something that you just forget about mid run? Because I think a lot of times, like if they're forgetting about it, mid run, chances are it's going to be below that four out of 10 pain threshold. Whereas if every step of the run is painstaking now, now we're probably getting up five plus. Yeah. And it's probably a lesson that people need to learn that if you start running and it's a one out of 10, if you interpret it as a one out of 10, 10 minutes in, it's now a two out of 10. Then it's a three out of 10, like a three out of 10 still acceptable. But if you've started off as a one and it's get, it's already up to a three, I would most likely stop or ed- educate people to stop because it's going to increase the likelihood of the further you go, the more the likelihood of it turning into a four or five or six out of 10. And so if you notice that progression, but sometimes people run and it starts at a three and then you can sort of suss it out and see how it goes. And if it stays at a three, fantastic. But we know for a lot of like muscle injuries and a lot of, especially tendon injuries, there's like a warm up effect as well. So it might start at a three and then it might get down to a two or maybe get to a, a one. Or if it's like a, a quite a stable tendinopathy, sometimes they can run pain-free once it's warmed up and they feel they have a lot more confidence to push off. Um, but that's when I let them know that they still need that snapshot of um, during the run, after the run, the next day, because especially with tendons, they can be warmed up and they can feel fantastic and they can run for an hour. And then later on that day, they're like, oh, the pain's coming back. And then the next morning they can hardly walk because they've just overdone it. And so that's why those three snapshots are really important in order to interpret whether you're negotiating the, that bout of exercise accordingly. That's a really good point. Cause I think like I've been fortunate not to, although I'm dealing with an injury right now, I've, I've had very few that have sidelined me certainly in the last decade or so since I started ultra running and one thing I do notice is if uh, the hardest ones for me to really, you know, pinpoint and get on top of right away are the ones you just described where, yeah, you wait, wake up a little tight, a little sore, a little stiff in a certain area. And you're like, oh, that's odd. Uh, but then it kind of loosens up and it, it sometimes it even loosens before you head out for the run. You just walk around the house for a little bit and it's like, okay, I can put my shoes on. And, and uh, the other, the other interesting one is like, you know, you're walking, I'm walking around barefoot. So sometimes I feel that stiffness a little more readily when I'm, when I'm walking barefoot, then you put the shoe on and you have this little bit of protection there. And I was like, Oh, it's gone. Now I can go out and do my run. And you have this sensation where you're kind of uh, out of the woods, so to speak. And, and you're fine, you're loosening up. But then later on that day, it starts to tighten up or, you know, for what will happen to me sometimes is as long if I kept moving around, it stays loose. But as soon as I uh, sit down or lay down for a meaningful amount of time. That's when everything starts to swell up and tighten up. And then I realize, oh, I overdid it. So is there a rule of thumb if you find yourself in that situation where 
over the course of the day with light movement, it's loosening up and staying fine, but you're, you're chronically waking up with a tightness in that area as to what level of training load is maybe appropriate to, to put on it to make it better or stronger versus progressively getting worse. Yeah. I think, especially if it's like chronic in nature, uh, I highly recommend people document their symptoms and really document down to a T just so they can accurately interpret what's going on. Because I think week by week, if someone's injured and they wake up and they've got a little bit of pain, they've got a little bit of stiffness um, and that lasts say half an hour, the um, for someone to try and recall like what happened seven days ago, like when they woke up seven days ago, what that level of stiffness was like, what that level of pain was like, really, really tough. So you want to try and document these symptoms so you can find trends in your symptoms because you might notice that like, oh, it's at the start of the week, like the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, where I'm quiet, I'm battling a little bit more, like the symptoms are hanging around for a little bit longer in the mornings, maybe sitting, it's a little bit more uncomfortable at um, but then later in the week, it's feeling okay. Why is that? And then you'll look through your training and say, oh, actually I run more on the weekends or I have a heavier workout, a more intense workout on my Monday mornings or something like that. And you might not be able to uncover those trends unless you, you kind of write things down and document symptoms. But um, proximal hamstring tendinopathy is an injury that I see a lot in my runners. And so it's the tendon that's really high up on the sitting bone that attaches onto the sitting bone. And sitting is a really big issue for those runners suffering with that tendinopathy. And so they will go for a run or do their strength training, do their rehab exercises. And then they see what symptoms are like during, they see what symptoms are like the next morning, but then it's, you know, sitting at the office, it's sitting in the car, it's doing those sort of things outside of their bouts of activity that they really need to hone in on and say, oh, I could sit for 20 minutes, but then pain came on after 20 minutes and got to a, a five out of 10 pain after 60 minutes. It's those sort of symptoms that you really need to document the qualities of the pain that you really need to document to see if there's a trend heading in, um, in the right direction, or if it's slightly getting worse or if it's staying the same. And so, yeah, I always recommend documenting down things. Um, especially if you've had it for several weeks and you can't really find an answer of whether it's getting better or not or what's making it better or what's making it worse because um, you can start uncovering a few things that way. Yeah, that's excellent. I think, uh, and, and then it almost rules out some of the subjectivity there too because then you can even individualize the way you're documenting or what exactly you're, the way you're describing things. And if it's just specific to yourself, it's a lot easier to compare whether, you know, oh, today it was, you know, I noticed it bothering me for 30 minutes versus, you know, 20 minutes and 10 minutes. And, and then, you know, you're heading the wrong direction or I was 30 minutes a day. And then the next day it was 25, then 20, then 15, you know, you're heading in the right direction. I, I really like that, that way of kind of assessing whether you're, you're, or I guess maybe ruling out some of that uncertainty or that question of like, am I doing what's right or wrong? Where, where similar to your training program, if you're, getting faster at a specific intensity, chances are you're doing some things right. If you're getting slower at a certain intensity, chances are you're not doing something right. So um, I really like that, that kind of uh, direction with it. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask about the pain side of things. I think this will be an interesting one for a lot of folks. I think a lot of people are a little more black and white with that, where they're like, 
there's pain there. I'm just going to try to ignore it, run through it. And then it blows up into something serious, or I've got pain here. That means all off, got to stay away from it. If I feel any ounce of pain, it means I'm doing something wrong. When in reality, like you said, a little bit of pain might be the sweet spot is the reason for, or maybe I should ask one thing I was told is like, obviously you want your body to be trying to proactively focus on an injured area to heal it, you know, get the resources down there required to heal whatever's going on down there. And sometimes people struggle a little more with some of these like further extremity issues like feet and ankles, because it just happens to be an area that's going to get a lot less blood flow directly to it. Uh, the way maybe like something a little closer, like further up, like in your shoulder or something like that is one of the reasons why a little bit of pain goes a long way is because if you're getting a little bit of pain, your body's likely sending a signal that this area still needs some attention. And it's going to be more likely that your body's going to mobilize resources to head to that area versus just having it kind of completely withdrawn from any type of movement. Whereas your body almost forgets that you need it because it's not doing anything essentially. Hey folks, just a quick reminder, this episode's sponsors include Inside Tracker's top-notch blood panel offerings for 25% off and Element Electrolytes free sample pack for all HPO listeners. Supporting the show sponsors through my links and codes is a great way to help keep the show free and accessible. So if any of their products interest you, head over to the links in the show notes or at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. I think there's several factors at play when it comes to poking into a little bit of pain. And one of them's definitely like, if you're more active, then you're going to heal. Like you said, blood flow is great. Blood flow is what heals injuries. And it doesn't necessarily need to be in pain. You can do some cardio. You can do like the elliptical, the bike, go for a swim. As long as you're getting your heart pumping, um, First of all, the, the blood flow is crucial when it comes to healing an injury because that's we know that if a say if there's certain cartilage um, or certain parts of a joint that doesn't get a lot of blood supply and you get into that area, that injury is going to be a lot more prolonged because it doesn't get a lot lot of blood flow to that area. But if you get a muscle tear or something where it's very rich in blood flow, it's going to heal a lot quicker. And so that's what we're doing with cross-training and staying active, staying engaged, staying proactive is um, keeping the heart pumping and keeping the, the nutrients delivering to that injured site. So that's one thing at play. Um, the other thing that, that we're doing is preserving the, the load tolerance. So we're preserving strength in a way. So no matter what we're doing, if it's, if it's a run, even if it's a little bit of pain, we're still stimulating those structures enough to stay strong or keep keep up with uh, a low tolerance rather than having a couple of weeks off and trying to restart again on this really sensitive um, structure. So there's the load management side of things. But I also think there's a lot to do with the brain and how the brain interprets, oh, I went out for an exercise. I love running. And if you still run at slow amounts, even if it's really low amounts, you feel better still doing what you love. You're getting out, you're getting some fresh air. You're, um, you're saying, hey, that actually wasn't too bad. Maybe my injury isn't as bad as I thought it was. And the, it's sort of tricking the brain in a way and it makes you feel good. We're releasing endorphins. And so that's a real aspect in itself. But also there's the confidence side of things. And I have, I've been a guest on a bunch of podcasts talking about pain science and what, how 
we actually interpret pain and what we mean when it comes to pain and context. And it's a really interesting discussion, but to kind of draw from that topic, if you are running and it's uh, a little bit of pain, yes, it's okay. But what are you telling yourself when you feel confident to push off that area, when you finish a run and symptoms are no worse and you're waking up the next morning feeling no worse, you're kind of convincing yourself, hey, that was okay. Maybe running is okay for me. And the brain starts to make it less of a priority to become hyper-focused on that area or worried or really anxious to put load through that area. And so the confidence itself, the confidence that the brain is generating when you do that also um, slowly climbs up. And all of those factors that I just described all just um, focus you towards like recovering better, having an ideal recovery. Whereas if someone was to not run for a couple of weeks, and then try and start running, the brain's telling themselves, oh, should we be doing this? Like, should we, what about if there's a little bit of pain? And then they start to get a little bit anxious. The brain starts to really wire itself up, starts to deliver any sort of little pain signals if it feels like it's being threatened. And because it may be a threat because you've had several weeks off, it it produces itself with a lot of anxiety and that can really delay recovery as well. And so, like I said, several factors at play, but still engaging, still being proactive, still poking to a little bit of pain are all proactive steps in order to heal as swift as you, as, as you can. And trying to return to pain-free running at the same pre-injury volumes as you once did as quickly as you can. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, uh, for a lot of folks who have been runners for a while and run with groups, they'll probably be familiar with one of their friends or maybe themselves talking about coming back after an injury and they'll say, Oh, I th- I've had this phantom pain in this previous injury. Is that kind of the, is that the reason people have that sensation because of what you were just saying is this kind of fear that that area has been injured before and you've kind of got in the back of your mind. And if you think about it enough during a run, especially in some of those like first few runs back where you're just by default, hyper-focused on the problem area where you almost do deliver a phantom pain to the area, even though it's not necessarily something that is indicating that the the problem is still there. Most likely. I think phantom pain is like when, when it comes to the medical term, it's probably something a bit different, but sure. yeah. <laughs> the, um, the pain itself, like if you do get this kind of fleeting sort of vague or even sharp pain, we need to recognize that all pain is generated from the brain. It doesn't matter what's happening to the tissues. If the brain prioritizes it as pain, then you're going to create that sensation, whether there's an injury there or not. So if you start running and you've had an injury for quite a while, the brain's going to start to be like, okay, what's happening here? Like it needs to start prioritizing whether to send pain signals there or not and sort of like assessing what to do. And it's assessing through a range of things. It's assessing through like... Um, your past experiences, it's assessing through like what you believe is going to be true, how you believe is going to um, tolerate this, whatever load you're putting it through. And so sometimes it's little, it's quite, the brain itself is quite sensitive to that area. And so it might start sending some of these mixed messages, um, might start sending sort of, I guess, false pain signals here and there until you build up enough confidence to be like, okay, this is gone. This isn't coming back. Like I feel so strong, feel so capable. Um, but then every now and then you might have like a misstep or you might go up a hill that you're a bit apprehensive about. And the brain's like, Oh, should we really, should I be telling the body that 
this is not the right thing to do. I, I'm feeling quite worried to tackle this hill and then another pain signal might start generating to that area. And so it's constantly the brain that's assessing the scenario, assessing the situation and in control of what pain signals are generated, how severe those pain signals are generated. It's constantly dialing down or turning up these the pain dials, we like to call them. Um, and so, yeah, that's totally possible that you could just be overcoming an injury, be super capable of running without um, any flare up. But every now and the brain, every now and then, the brain starts to be like, "Oh, should we be? Should we be cautious? Should we be apprehensive in this scenario?" And so that's probably why people are experiencing those sort of those sort of symptoms. Excellent. I think um, the next thing I want to kind of dive into is just some maybe some specifics around cross training as to potential like starting points or maybe even a list of like activities that are preferred that are going to be most beneficial for your running when you run. Cause when I think of, you know, cross training, if I just walk into a gym, you know, I might see like a stairmaster, an elliptical, uh, you know, one of those Jacob ladders devices, then obviously all the strength equipment, uh, the rowing machines and then the swimming pool cycles and all that stuff. And then within the, the bikes, you have just kind of like your stationary bike, you've got the, um, you've got some of the more like dynamic ones where your upper body and lower body, uh, you know, all these different kind of devices. Is there like one that you think is just going to be better? Maybe I should ask it in two ways. One that's going to be more conducive to maintaining the mechanics and range of motion and things that would be unique to the running movement versus others. And then is there some that are going to maybe be a little better for like actually strengthening the area of concern so that when you do come back, it's actually a little more protective in that area? Yeah. I think this is a good topic to delve into. First of all, it's obviously going to depend on the injury. It's going to depend on whether you have a foot issue to a hip issue to a knee issue. Um, and then how severe that, that injury currently is. But there is some tailored advice you can I, I have for all my runners, depending on what injury they have. But when it comes to running, when someone is injured, like there's a lot of force that's generated through the body when you run. And we, we know this, I think I said this last time when I was on your podcast, like when it comes to the, the knee and the hip, every single step that you take, that is two and a half times your body weight through load every single step that you take. When it comes to like individual tissues of the body, particularly more distal around the foot and the ankle six to eight times your body weight, every single step that you take. And so if an injury, if you have an injury, that's say plantar fasciitis and you can't tolerate, like, like you try to do a run walk program, really low amount, and it still flares up. You need to do something else while this injury is sort of recovering, we still need to be, like we say, proactive. We still need to try and maintain the load as much as we can while we're having time off running. And so this is where cross-training can really be a benefit because we can do swimming, which if someone has a stress fracture or just coming back from a stress fracture or they have really severe plantar fasciitis and you can't tolerate any loads, any like weight-bearing activities, swimming is going to be your option and swimming is an option for a lot of injuries because we offload the body and we're still getting a really nice cardiovascular workout. We're still like getting that blood flow to all areas of your body. Um, 
the only thing is it's very hard to find runners who love swimming and a lot of runners are just like, I'm not doing that. Let me find something else. And so that's where it can be very tricky. But if someone can tolerate, if they can't tolerate running, but they can tolerate high levels of walking, then maybe the elliptical is something that's more suited to them. It's very much like a running style action, um, but you're not getting that same ground reaction force. And so if you can tolerate um, the elliptical and we can, and we want to try and preserve as much running as we can. It's a very similar type of action. Very, You're working very similar muscles, but we're just avoiding that kind of high loads, that the big spikes in ground reaction force. And so that could be an option as well. I like uh, the the bike, no matter whether it's stationary or whatever the, the options that you do have. But if someone has say like a knee issue or if they have that high hamstring tendinopathy um, and they're not used to the bike and then they try to say, Oh, I'm not running. So let me try and just smash myself on the, on the bike and go for like a two hour session that can generate high knee loads and high forces around the proximal hamstring tendon as well. So we want to be very careful, but very much similar to the principles we said, when you're returning to running while injured, the same thing needs to be said for this cross training things while injured. We started a very low amount just as a trial and error. I want to see how symptoms feel during how symptoms feel after how symptoms feel the next day and make sure that you're still tolerating those cross training options. And so those principles still apply and which, um, which route we go down, whether we go through the swimming, cycling, elliptical, stairmaster, um, the rower, really depends on the injury and depends how your symptoms are behaving when we start to, to trial some sort of dosage. Usually start around 20 minutes I like to have for, for people, depending on their injury. Start 20 minutes on the bike, see how you feel. If that feels fine, maybe the next day you can do 30, 30 minutes and then just slowly build up from there. While we're doing that, we're um, doing some strength training in order to bridge the gap between where you're currently at and what's required for running. And so that might be squats. It might be skipping. It might be like double leg jumping, might be box jumps, something like that. We're trying to bridge the gap to tolerate what is required for running. And so that's where a coach comes in. That's where a health professional comes in, or you just learn yourself to, to train smarter and build up that, that rehab ladder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know when I can get away with multiple different activities, I prefer circuiting through them because for whatever reason, I can tolerate an insane amount of monotony while running. But if I'm especially on an indoor machine, it's like I want to just switch from one to the next. But uh, I think that's sometimes an overlooked option, too, is like you don't necessarily have to sit on the elliptical for however long you're planning to work out that day, assuming you're even trying to match the time or can match the time, but you might be able to, you know, say spend part of that time on the elliptical part of it on the stairmaster, and then do some, uh, some, some strength mechanics and things like that, and get you to that, that, that training load you're looking for throughout a variety of different activities. Yeah. Build a little circuit for yourself as well. If you like that engagement, I, I have a couple of my runners do this, even at their house with the little setup that they have, they do skipping for a couple of minutes and they jump on the bike for a couple of minutes. And then they do say, weighted squats or lunges or something for a couple of minutes. And then they just find themselves in a little circuit. It could be really nice to keep you engaged, keep the variety up, but also build up your tolerance to, to handle multiple, um, multiple loads, multiple ranges of movement, those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that one thing to pay attention to when you're kind of cross training as a rehab to 
like, you know, biking can be unique in that it would potentially be just, I shouldn't say just as bad, but it can also be problematic in like areas like your knees and then the hamstring tendinopathy. Is there anything with like the Achilles tendon that goes with that too? Cause when I think of biking, like depending on the person, it's like, you might get someone who gets on the saddle and just kind of like has a pretty uniform, like motion mechanic. Then you get someone who just, maybe they decide, Hey, I'm going to just go on this trail, this mountain bike, and they might be getting up and like really flexing in on that, that tendon is, do you see issues with that too, where folks are trying to cross train and actually making it worse because of that? Yeah, I, I, I really like the bike as a cross-train option because you're not getting that ground reaction force, but you're still using the same muscles, very similar muscles to you would if you were running, um, just not to the same extent. Like we're still engaging our glutes. We're definitely pumping the the quads. Um, if you've got the cleats and you're kind of clipped in, we're using your hamstrings quite a lot and we're using your calf a little bit as well. And say if someone does have an Achilles issue, and they really can't tolerate running because you need to push off with a lot of force when you run. The calf complex itself, which is in extension the Achilles, um, generates the most force when we run. It's the the powerhouse kind of muscle that we need. But cycling can be that bridge or that step back where you're still stimulating that muscle. You're still stimulating your calf and your Achilles when you when you're on the bike, but it's just nowhere to the extent that's required when we run. And so if you have a very grumbly, irritable Achilles, then yes, cycling can still be, can still be an issue, um, especially depending if someone has just one of those, um, those uh, pedals where you just slide your foot on. If your toes are more towards the pedal rather than the heel towards the pedal, then it's going to generate more strain through the Achilles. And so there can, we can play around with the foot position on the pedal. But it can actually help if you're if running's no good, but you're actually tolerating quite high levels of cycling. You can stimulate that calf, you can stimulate that Achilles, and um, it can be a very good contributor to your rehab. And you can get back to running sooner if you have found that cycling is a really nice dosage for you. But like you said, it can people can go the other way where. It is a bit grumbly. It is really sensitive, but then they have a really intense session on the bike and they're up on the pedals and they're sort of just like climbing and putting a lot, a lot of power, a lot of Watts through that, um, that can like flare things up as well. And so that's why we need to pay attention to symptoms, no matter what the exercise is, no matter whether it's running cross training or doing your rehab exercises, really need to pay attention to symptoms during after next day, just to make sure that what we're doing is okay for that injured site. Cool. Uh, I want to pivot just a bit towards kind of a slightly parallel topic of, um, you know, we think of injuries and then we tend to be reactive to try to figure out what is wrong. And sometimes I've learned the most about what I should have been doing or something I need to start doing once I get injured and start identifying some of maybe what were potentially the root causes there. So, uh, you know, it can be anything from like, a tight muscle area that you need to work on. So it's not causing issues like further down the kinetic chain or up the kinetic chain and, and goofy things like that. And a lot of times I find they're not in the area of discomfort. So it's just, it doesn't, it's just not something that necessarily clicks in your head. You know, if you have like an Achilles issue, 
but maybe it's the top of your calf that's actually really tight that was causing the strain on that Achilles tendon. And you don't necessarily think about it unless someone tells you. And uh, for example, when I went in, I've had three different professionals look at my ankle and all three of them said, wow, your calves are very, very tight. <laughs> so after the third one, I took that as a bit of a sign as, okay, maybe I need to be a little more proactive with uh, some of the mobility and some of the massage type techniques I'm using in that area to make sure I'm not getting a little too locked up in there. And uh, I went and got my foam roller out and just kind of what I like to do. And you can tell me if I'm doing this, if this is a good idea, bad idea, or how you would maybe assess this is what I like to do is I'll roll the the muscle or the area of that I'm potentially trying to assess all across that foam roll until I find a spot that is particularly tight. So for me, I found like this knot right on kind of the top outside of both of my calves. And once I find that spot, then it's just like, okay, I dig into that with whatever device, whether it's a foam roller, or I've got this little massage tool thing. It's just a really hard uh, um, thing. You can just dig into like areas like plantar fascia or like a tight muscle and just really work it out, loosen it out over time. And the funny thing is like when I started doing that kind of consistently, the first time I spent like 15 minutes on that one spot, just digging in. And then after I finished, I got up and everything in my ankle area felt way more loose and mobile. And I was starting to kind of connect some dots. I was like, okay, well maybe I need to be addressing this as well as that direct area in order to make sure I'm strengthening and in a position to be able to resume training at the capacity that I want to get back to eventually. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. So um, when it comes to the first part of your question around being reactive and making sure that we're identifying anything that might be a precursor for injury, again, I like to follow universal principles because it would depend on the injury. But when it comes to running related injuries, the vast majority, 90, 95% of injuries are due to either overtraining or under-recovering. And that be like you've exceeded that that adaptation zone that we're talking about before, whether it being doing too much mileage, doing um, too much too soon, too much speed, either a change in terrain, like you're adapted to running on the flats and then all of a sudden you're doing hills that require a lot of pounding on the way down and a lot of propulsion on the way up. And there's that component of it and other kind of abrupt changes in training load. So maybe changing shoes, going from like a shoe you're adapted to, to a type of shoe that's completely different. Maybe it's a bit more minimalist or barefoot qualities. And then all of a sudden your calf, Achilles, plantar fascia all need to work really the need the requirements uh, um, through the roof and you haven't adapted to it yet. So we always look for when someone is injured or if someone's getting a couple of like sore spots, tight spots, strains here and there. We always want to make sure that the load, the external load is um, is okay and there's no none of those huge abrupt changes. But then there's also the other side of the equation, which is under-recovering. So you can either overload, under-recover, or somewhere between the both. And so the under-recovery is making sure you're sleeping okay, making sure your nutrition's okay, making sure you're hydrating okay, and make sure that you're unwinding so you're not like highly stressed throughout the whole entire day that be physical stress through your exercise or mental stress either with work family you know some people are just really wound up and don't have a lot of time to settle down so people can be really highly strung really highly stressed 24 hours in the day 
and their body just can't switch into recovery mode. So they can't adapt to the loads that they're putting when they're running or working out because they're, they just can't switch off from exercise mode into recovery mode. And so we want to find in that equation or we want to find in that balance if there's anything going wrong there that might lead to the calves being tight or the hips getting weak or those sort of scenarios. Um, so that's just a very general principle that applies to all running related injuries that a lot of people might want to self-reflect on or assess. Um, when it comes to say tightness or like you've described this tightness in your calves and there's tightness around um, the, that kind of complex. And it's making your, when you release all those areas, it's making your ankle a lot more mobile. Um, there's a few things to be said about that. The, the foam rollers, we know that some people love the foam rollers and makes them feel really good afterwards. We also know that uh, some people do the foam rollers and absolutely hate them. <laughs> and there's, there's, they, they either love to hate them or they just hate them and they don't feel much better afterwards. Um, what it's doing physically to the body, the science isn't really yet to, to show. You're not really releasing muscles. You're not really lengthening the muscles. Similar to stretching, you don't really have, you don't really change the properties too much. But what we do know is that people feel a lot better after using them. Similar to a massage, you don't really have a lot of physical benefits, but we know it has a lot of mental benefits as well. And that may come along with the beliefs around, like we say, with the brain, how all the pain and relief comes from the brain. And there may be a lot of beliefs. There may be a lot of pain inhibition. So if you find like a really sore spot and you really work that area, what happens is like the nervous system tends to inhibit pain to that area. And so that might um, help numb a lot of those pain signals. Then you you just stand up feeling a lot better because there's n- that uh, it almost feels like it releases in a way. And so with those particular areas of focus, along with stretching, along with foam rolling, massage balls, um, a few of those other modalities, a few of those other devices, I always say to my runners, try it out. If you feel better from it, then that's going to be a part of your rehab. That's going to be a regular part of your rehab because first of all, you believe it to be true because you've experienced it and experienced the benefits. Um, But two, those sort of devices also act as a way for people to switch into recovery mode as well. Like we're talking about with the people who are sometimes highly stressed throughout the whole entire day. If they have to lay down and do 15, 20 minutes with a foam roller, with a massage ball, doing some light stretches actually makes them feel like they, they've loosened up and they've switched into that, reco- that recovery mode in order to overcome that injury as well. So tons of mental benefits. Evidence doesn't really hold up with the physical kind of direct benefits, even though they, they claim a lot on like the packaging mm-hmm. and those sort of things. But we do know that it has real repercussions or real um, advances, real like benefits when it comes to using them just depends on the individual. And so we try out a whole bunch of things. If it really works for someone, that is then a part of their rehab along with all the other strengthening and all the other load management and the evidence-based kind of guidance that they have around that. Um, But yeah, like a lot of the things, it is a trial and error. Yeah, that's interesting. So is is the research around that like trigger point type of process uh, just not evolved enough for us to know for sure if there's a physical benefit. So we're just, obviously you're not going to make a claim that, you know, is unproven. 
that could potentially be, or is the research quite strong? And therefore we just know like, okay, this is, this isn't necessarily a direct assistance to you. It's maybe a secondary one, like you mentioned with the mental side of stuff. Yeah. There, uh, there's an absence of evidence. Okay. And so, um, I had a, um, I had a massage therapist on my podcast, um, Alice Sanvito, and she's very much evidence-based around her. It was a really fascinating conversation because she works with a lot of um, clients. She, she's a massage therapist. That's all she does. But she almost knows that there's no such thing as increasing blood flow. There's no such thing as releasing your ITB. There's no such thing as like trigger points, like what, they, what other massage therapists claim um, when they say, oh, you push here and it releases somewhere else here because there's this trigger point that generates, like this is language and stuff that I learned as a physio and I thought to be true when I started, when I graduated and started um, delivering my massage techniques. And we know that like, it's similar to what I was describing with the foam roller. We know that you lay someone down who's in pain, you give them a massage, they have some trigger points, you release them, they get up feeling heaps better. They're walking out pain-free and you're like, that's magic. But when it comes to the the actual physics and the mechanics and what we know the nervous system does and what we know the muscle system does. Like it doesn't make any sense of why they feel better because we know this nerve doesn't connect here. We know that if you push here, it doesn't release over there, but the either the placebo effect, which placebo effect has the, has an effect on everyone, no matter what they do. Um, say strength training has a, has a placebo effect as well. Um, but yeah, we know that the first of all, the the brain starts to really prioritize recovery and says, "Oh, I'm finally paying attention to this area. Oh, this feels amazing. Having someone push into here and have someone massage here, I feel incredible. I'm gonna stand up feeling incredible." Um, so yeah, there's an absence to why it actually makes sense, why people feel so much better. But if they feel better, definitely do it. It's, we're not telling them because the science. There's an absence of evidence um, to not do it if you feel really like if you feel the benefits if you stand up from that massage table and you're jumping around pain-free you're gonna you're gonna continue having that Mm -hmm. um but around that that episode with alice sanvito was there's a bit of a danger around becoming too reliant on the things that aren't evidence-based or long-term solutions as well and so someone may have these benefits from a massage and getting trigger point releases and then that therapist says you need to come twice a week because you know, your nervous system keeps being wound up and it needs to be released on a regular basis. <laughs> and like, they start to draw you in to like, now it's a part of the business model. Like you have to, you have to have this done. You have to become reliant on this therapist for only hands-on work. And there's no talk about long-term benefits or um, what like evidence-based treatment, that sort of thing. So that's where people mm-hmm. can get quite stuck. But as long as you're aware of all of that stuff and you say, I know I feel great after a massage. I'm going to have that massage. I'm going to have, I'm going to do my foam rolling. I'm going to do my stretches. I'm going to do my, all my other recovery um, regimes or my other recovery strategies. Then that's totally fine. I say, go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost like nonverbal positive self-talk <laughs> where you, yep. you kind of, a you're doing something that you perceive is going to be beneficial. And then it kind of sets your mind into the positive direction versus the negative. Uh, it's really interesting. Do, uh, are you, how much are how familiar are you with like active release therapy? Is that kind of in the same ballpark as that? Or is that, a, is that something different altogether? I think 
um, it's in the same ballpark of give it a try. And if you feel great from it, then continue doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's almost similar to stretching, just a different, like kind of stretch regime. Um, because we know with stretching, we know that through research that stretching doesn't reduce your risk of injuries, doesn't increase your running performance either, but it makes people feel so much better depending on the individual. And we know that say stretching before a run or stretching after a run or stretching on your non-running days is a good recovery strategy mentally and switches mm -hmm. people off into that recovery mode. So people feel a lot better and um, people do a stretch. Some people, not everyone, but some people do a stretch 10 minutes before run, then they go for a run. They feel so much better mm -hmm. as opposed to if they didn't stretch beforehand. And so um, on the same, uh, if we flip the, the equation or flip the coin, some people do a 10 minute stretch and feel indifferent when they go for a run after doing that 10 minutes of stretching. There's a, um, we know that doesn't reduce their risk of injury. We know it doesn't increase their likelihood of performance, but we know they feel so much better. So why wouldn't you continue doing it if um, mm -hmm. it gives you those positive, like if it makes your body feel so much better? Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, I feel like I probably, when it comes to static stretching, if I can get away without doing it, I'm going to probably try to get away without doing it outside of like, like you said, a few times where, you're kind of tight enough and actually just feels good to physically do it. And that's like a positive thing, but every once in a while I'll do, I'll have a situation where I'll do probably some hamstring work in the gym and I'll just be a little tight the next day. And I'll go for, I'll start a run and I'll just notice, I feel like I'm just a little more restrained in my range of motion or it feels like that. And I'll just stop and do some static hamstring stretches. And it feels like a little more, it feels better a little bit after that, at least for a while. So like chances are like just the act of doing that is getting me like to think about loosening and put my mind in like a little more focused on like a proper range of motion. And it's just fixing kind of maybe a mechanical thing that's lagging behind. Cause I'm a little tighter there because I'm more, more focused on it or something like that. But yeah, it's interesting. I think there's something to be said as well. Like when, in that particular scenario, when you say it, it feels tight it's often the muscle that's sore. And mm -hmm. like, you, like you said, in that scenario, you, you went to the gym beforehand, uh, the day beforehand. And so the muscles themselves have been, have been worked and you're probably just getting a slight bit of delayed onset muscle soreness, the DOMS the next day. Mm -hmm. And when you stretch your hamstrings, that's when that soreness comes on. And so because you stretch the muscle and it feels sore, you're like, oh, it feels really tight. Mm -hmm. And so people interpret it to feel tight because your stretching feels sore. But what the muscles are, they're just sore. Mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not tight. People really have a sensation of tightness. And so they interpret as tightness and then for, therefore they feel they need stretching to to balance that out um when in fact stretching would make things feel better like if i do a chest press the next day my, my pecs are really sore i'm stretching for the whole day because it feels better mm -hmm. when you have that that soreness but it's not lengthening the muscle the muscles aren't really tight they're just sore from the workout the day before so how we interpret these things and the the strategies that we use requires a little bit of um a little bit of explanation i'd say yeah, that's actually an interesting point that I hadn't thought of when I asked that question. But is the sensation of tightness, the fact that we describe it as tightness, is that sensation just our essentially our brain doing something that's going to make us likely to limit the activity at which we're doing so that we don't overwork a muscle that has been worked the day prior? I'd say in my opinion, it's 
Um, it's just the body sensation of letting you know that it's been overworked, but it's kind of a good overworked, you know, mm. it's um, we know that physically when you do a workout, when you do a strong session or you've um, trained the body with heavy weights and the next day it is a bit sore, that's just the body, the muscles themselves having these little like micro tears. And it's just a part of the, the healing process you need. You don't actually get strong when you're in the gym working out. You get strong afterwards. It's the recovery afterwards that actually has all these magical benefits. And so the body's probably telling you when it is feeling a bit sore, we probably need to rest now because now's our rest period. So this is where we get stronger. This is where we have the um, all the magic kind of happens. And so if it is sore, it's a message to you to be like, ah, maybe I should take a rest day on that particular area in order to, to get stronger. Um, that's probably just my interpretation, but makes, makes a whole lot of sense because we do need to follow up that exercise, that bout of exercise with rest in order for it to recover. Mm -hmm. No, it makes sense. And I think kind of leads into another topic. I think will be interesting. Uh, one of the chapters in your, your new ebook is, uh, titled the perfect Warm Up." So I'm thinking like, when people think of stretching and things like that, a lot of times their minds go to both like post-workout or pre-workout rituals and things that they're doing before the activity that they're really trying to target. Uh, do you want to tell me a little bit about the perfect warm-up and what types of activities maybe are included in that that are actually going to get your body prepared versus maybe give you a perception of preparedness? Yeah. So um, the ebook itself has 10 chapters and the, the title is to how to strive for an injury-free PB, personal best. And so every chapter has a contains a certain aspect of running in order for you to achieve that that goal and so the perfect warm up the warm up needs to be in there um, in order for you to recognize like well what is what how should i be preparing myself and that's what the warm up is a warm up is designed to prepare your body for what it's about to do and a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions around what it should involve because a lot of people think they need to stretch or else it's going to increase their risk of injury or decrease their performance. And the science just doesn't hold up for that. The, the science actually is, shows the counter. And mm -hmm. so um, when it comes to a warm-up, what exactly should we do? Well, if you're going for a weekend long run, which is very low intensity, not a lot of speed work involved, not it's quite flat, um, not a lot of like exertion on your behalf in terms of your perceived exertion throughout the run, you don't really need to prepare your body very much for what it's about to do. And so sometimes a perfect warm-up for an individual, depending on the run, is just a slow run or maybe a walk that slowly builds up the speed until you've reached that kind of slow pace that you're requiring it to do. And it's it's very common. It's what a lot of runners do. They say, I don't really spend a lot of time stretching, maybe a couple of seconds here and there. Um, maybe I'll put my foot up over the fence and kind of stretch forward and then I just go for my run and I just make sure that the first couple of minutes is just really easy and I just slowly warm up to it and build up to it. That's the perfect warm up for someone who needs to do a very slow, easy run. The It's a different equation if someone is a sprinter or if someone wants to do an interval session or if someone wants to do like hill repeats or something that requires a lot of um, bounding kind of really intense um, pushing off because the body's re required to do something else. It's required to do something very forceful, um, very quick, and we need to be very um, cautious to prepare your body for that. And so what that looks like, maybe it might be 
increasing a bit of mobility around the hips. Maybe it's doing a little bit of stretching around the hips. Maybe it's slowly building up your speed, like slowly building up your intervals. So if you do have a hill in front of you, maybe it's jogging up that hill, then going up that hill a little bit faster and then walking down, going up that hill a little bit faster, going down, making sure the heart rate starts to creep up. You're getting a little bit of a sweat um, before you actually get into your session. Therefore, the body's prepared for what it's about to do. And so the chapter itself kind of highlights the importance of preparing the body, but also um, also down talks the, the high importance that people hold when it comes to stretches. And the chapter contains the advice like I just talked about before. You can go through a whole uh, bunch of regimes, a whole bunch of strategies around stretching and find what best works for you. And you need to find maybe it's, 10 second stretch, like a 10 second static stretch of your quads, glutes, calves, um, maybe lower back, and then away you go. But in the same, the same space, like maybe next time you want to do a 15 minute stretch where you're really concentrating, maybe doing a lot of yoga style sort of stretches um, and see how you feel. Go for that same run and see if you feel any better. And if you do feel better, maybe you're one to really tend towards the the, a lot of stretches before a run, but we can't convince ourselves of what that's actually achieving. We're doing that because you feel better during the run and where a lot of people get stuck and where I get a little bit, um, where I need to educate a lot of my podcast listeners is because I'll often hear them say they're constantly injured with different things or constantly re-injured with a whole bunch of things. And they tell me, I know it's because I don't stretch enough. And they're telling themselves that they've convinced themselves with this belief that they're constantly getting injured because they don't stretch enough. They say, yeah, but I don't like stretching. So I'm never going to do it. But what they're doing is they're focusing on this stretching component when why they're actually getting injured is totally being ignored. They could maybe have a different training philosophy. Maybe they're training too hard. Maybe they're under recovering. Maybe they're not getting enough sleep. And there's an area that's actually causing them to be injured constantly but they're not focusing on that because they think it's because of the stretching. And so that's where we kind of need to have this discussion or educate runners around. This is where you're most likely, the most likely causes of injury are going to be have self-reflect on that before we delve into the research of what stretching does and um, try not to convince yourself otherwise of why you are getting injured. And if you do stretch, fantastic. It's only because it feels good for you. And so as a personal anecdote, like I didn't really used to prioritize stretching a lot. I used to do five seconds each muscle group and then head out the door. But I've since um, tried different strategies and I've since found that, you know, five years after, you know, five years after stretching this one similar way, I've tried something different. And now I try and stretch a little bit more. I try and stretch my hips a little bit more, try and stretch my ankles a little bit more just for a bit of mobility stuff. And I feel a bit better now. Maybe it's because I'm getting a bit older. I don't know. But I seem to prioritize more stretching now than ever because it makes me feel great. It makes me feel better when I'm heading out the door. And maybe I'll change my stretch strategy to do more yoga style in another 10 years. Who knows? But it's only because I feel better. I'm not convincing myself of injury prevention magic or increasing Mm -hmm. my running performance. It's just because it makes me feel a lot better during. It, there's, there's plenty of things that make you feel good that are bad for you. So it's, you should probably be satisfied that stretching is more or less one that makes you feel good. That isn't necessarily bad for you other than 
the time. And then I guess if you're going to do an explosive sport, you probably don't want to do a lot of static testing. So I think the research there actually does show that it can compromise your, your performance output when you're getting into a little more high intensity type stuff. Yeah. Very important that we highlight that as well. Like there's no detrimental, um, like stretching isn't a bad thing. Stretching can have its good mental properties, make you feel better. And if you do a lot of stretching, it's not going to increase your likelihood of injury. If you're a recreational runner, we do know that, um, as a runner, you do want to be like a, you do want to be quite rigid. What we say, when you land and when you take off, you want to be efficient and efficient spring. Um, so sometimes being quite rigid can be quite nice for your running efficiency. Um, if you're a sprinter, a lot of static stretches won't do a lot for you. There is um, not only increase your likelihood of injury only by a small fraction, but it will increase your likelihood of injury if you do a lot of static stretches and then do really explosive stuff. But there's also um, evidence to show that if you are a very explosive athlete with very short durations in running, so like 100, 200 track style sort of stuff, if you do, if you do a lot of static stretches, um, you're just not as explosive out of the gate and it will slightly hinder your performance as well. And so um, when I talk to recreational runners, that's the advice I give, but the the explosive athletes, the sprinters is, is kind of in another field in itself. And same with stretching. Like if you're a gymnast, if you're a dancer, if you're pushing your joints through end of range movements, stretching beforehand, stretching would probably reduce your risk of injury, probably increase your performance. Um, but for a recreational runner, we don't put our joints through a large range of motion. Um, so that's where I'm sort of keeping, when I talk about the evidence, I'm mainly talking around recreational runners rather than any other athlete. Interesting. Um, a couple other things in, I guess, this kind of realm, dynamic stretching, is there a place for that prior to a workout? And then mobility routines, which I always see as like kind of a combination of dynamic stretching and static stretching, where I feel like it's, it's not quite, I don't want to say jarring because that's the wrong word. It's not quite like, I guess, dynamic enough to be like a full leg swing or like a high knee movement or something like that. But it is movement within like a stretching kind of department. Do those have a, of a place or of more value perhaps than a static stretch from a research standpoint? Um, from a research standpoint, I haven't come a lot of across a lot of dynamic stretching. Usually when there's a stretching research paper, they tend to focus on static stretching for some reason. I think it might be easier to measure or like mm. easier to um, have a controlled scenario. I'm not too sure why, but um, so Research aside, like when it comes to a dynamic warm up, I guess it's the same principles. It's trying to prepare the body for what it's about to do. So maybe if you feel better doing more of a dynamic warm up compared to a static stretch, we know that dynamic warm ups, say if you're doing, um, say if you're jogging on the spot and try and get your your knees to your chest, so it's sort of like marching on the spot with a really high knee thrust, or if you're doing those butt flicks where you're trying to get your ankles to your heels. That's more of a running action. That's more of a bounding on the spot. That's more of a preparing the body for what it's about to do. Um, leg swings, like if you feel good doing that, it's less of a running action. It's less of a specific to running. But if you feel good doing it, then definitely do it. Um, if you're jumping on the spot, you're engaging your calves, your Achilles, your plantar fascia to prepare the body for the action of running. But sometimes running, just doing a slow run, 
is a dynamic warm-up in itself, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that side of things. But then you also mentioned the mobility, which is more to do with the joints. Like when we usually talk about mobility, we talk about the ankle, we talk about the knee, we talk about the hip, and we talk about the lower back. So more of the the bones, the joints themselves, rather than the muscle and the tendons. And if you think on a bell curve around people's stiffness, you sometimes have the hypermobile runners who are really, really flexible. Um, They should probably tend to not do a lot of mobility stuff before they do some activity. They actually need more strength and more rigidity than anything else. Um, On the, uh, like, then you have, 80 to 90% of all runners who fit somewhere in the middle of that bell curve that don't really require a lot because they're mobile enough to negotiate the actions required for running, which is a bit of hip extension, which is like a bit of um, ankle dorsiflexion. So that's kind of flexion around the ankle. Um, Definitely like if most people have enough knee and lower back mobility required for running because, you know, those joints don't really stiffen up that much. But then we go to the other side of the bell curve, usually your master's athletes, usually your runners who are kind of in their 50s, 60s, and still like running a bit, their ankles are going to be quite stiff. Their hips are going to be quite stiff and they might need a little bit more mobility work before a run. If they don't have this like extension of their their hip, if they don't have this like 10 to 15 degrees of hip extension, if they don't have like a certain amount of range through the ankle required for running, then they will start compensating elsewhere and they will start shifting their body and doing all these other compensatory um, movements. That's probably not ideal for a runner, but if you did a little bit of mobility work before a run, that would probably change their biomechanics for the better. So um, mobility work is probably beneficial for those type of runners, but it's a very small percentage of runners that are actually out there. And so um, that's not very research backed, but it's just my thoughts and my clinical justification of what makes sense. And so that's usually where I fall on. Interesting. That's all really helpful stuff. I think right, right now, the, the runner who uh, has been relatively injury free and is looking for a reason to cut all the stretching and the warm up type stuff and just want to get out there and ease into the run or, are celebrating. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, do what, do what feels, feels good for you. Mm -hmm. And if, but in the same way that runner who doesn't follow the, the stretches or the warmups and just gets in, gets out there and they're still breaking down, they're still getting injured, like, you know, three or four times a year. um, They probably should change a lot of these strategies. And a lot of these principles I do talk about on the pod, on my podcast, it's trying to educate the runners as best as I can. Um, to make those smart decisions. And so, yeah, sometimes running isn't like sometimes stretching, sometimes you don't need to stretch. And sometimes that can be quite liberating for someone. Um, But if they are getting into there's probably some areas that they probably need to focus on. Yeah. I mean, it's just interesting too, as a coach where, you know, I have such a wide range of clients in terms of what they have available to them. It's like, you know, some of them are very busy and it's like the last thing I want to do is tell them they need to be stretching for 30 minutes a day. And then they get out their alarm clock and bump it back 30 minutes from where they would have normally got up. And now they're getting, you know, six hours of sleep instead of six and a half. And, (laughs) you know, you can easily find a way to make that something that's benign negative when you're, when you're, it's replacing something that would have been a more proactive move forward for yourself uh, in your, your schedule and everything. 
Yeah. And especially when it comes to recovery, when it comes to switching into recovery mode, mm-hmm. optimizing your recovery, which is a chapter in my ebook as well. Um, short answer, get more sleep. Like if you're not getting a lot of good quality sleep, there's tons of research to show the benefits of sleep, the true powers it can have in recovery. If you were to combine all the other uh, recovery healing properties that are out there, so you're talking like foam rollers, massage balls, stretching, massage. If you were to stack all of those on top of one another, it still wouldn't surpass what a good night's sleep will get in terms of recovery. And so if you're getting up half an hour to try and do some foam rolling, stay in bed for an extra half hour because it's going to do you a world of good. Yeah, that's what I, a lot of times we'll share with my my clients too. It's like let's get rid, let's take care of those big movers first: sleep, nutrition, and proper training load. Get those right, then we can start talking about ice baths, saunas, static stretching, foam rolling, and all that sort of stuff. It's it's uh it's it's always interesting to see what people put higher and lower on the totem pole and what actually is the big mover on the, with their situation. Yeah, well said. I talked to um, Shona Halston on my podcast and she's the, a recovery expert, work, worked with a lot of um, national teams and Olympians and those sort of things. And she has the pyramid, which is um, a really nice illustration because you want the foundation of the pyramid covered before you can start layering on top of the other layers. And so sleep and downtime, like time to unwind, that's the very bottom. Hydration and nutrition is that second layer. And then you've got all the way on top of those, all the, the stretches, the ice baths, the saunas. Um, there's some, oh, I, I should say as well, like hydrotherapy and hot, cold contrast kind of therapies is that third layer because there is some good research around that. Um, but then fourth, fifth, sixth is like your stretches, foam rollers, other fads that, that come and go over the years. Um, but you need to make sure you have that foundation first. You want to make sure that's covered before you pile on that second layer and you want to make sure that's covered before you pile on the third layer and the fourth layer and so forth. Excellent. Uh, one other kind of topic that might be fun to look at just a little bit too, uh, is, and we can use myself as a case study here, perhaps to kind of illustrate what we're, what we're going to get at here, which is just like strength training and where that maybe would fall in relation to I've injured myself obviously I don't want to injure again. So part of that is letting it heal and building back up at a proper uh, rate and training load. Is there also like specific strength things that you will focus on that are going to be unique to the situation where, you know, for me, for my example, I injured my ankle. I had a partial tear on my anterior tibialis tendon. uh, And one of the recommendations I had was you want that to heal. And then you want to also implement maybe some strength work in that area. So there's more, it's more protected and you're maybe putting a little less stress on that actual area that partially tore in the future. Am I heading in the right direction with that mindset? And if so, do you have any recommendations as the types of strength movements that would be conducive for that type of an area? Yeah. So if we fall back on that same principle around adaptation, when you do have an injured structure, that adaptation zone drops and it's our job to try and build it back up to pre-injury status. And so we do that through strength training and through rehab exercises to try and say, okay, so we need to get back to running. Running requires a lot of force through the ankle, requires a lot of stability and control through the ankle, requires a lot of endurance if you're out for, you know, several hours. 
So let's start rehabbing this area to build you back up to that capacity. But we like to go one step further once you are, are at that pre, pre-injury kind of loading and you're back to running at those loads. And say it's focused on one particular ligament that's always getting sore or has previously been damaged. I like to go one step further and say, let's get this a lot stronger. Let's get this stronger than what it was pre-injury because we don't want you to overload yourself again and all of a sudden um, it's injured again and then we're going through that the same motions. Let's try and get this capacity as high as we can so that you can run ultras and it does not break down. Somewhere around, like somewhere else in the, the, the chain, you might break down if you decide to you know, really push yourself. But for this particular structure, let's really build up. Let's really, really um, progress and progress and progress so that we just can't surpass its limitation. That's all theoretical. Like, um, but the idea is there to try and build it up. And so if we're talking about the ankle, if we're talking about um, what's required, if you're doing, say, trails or doing hills, requires a lot of propulsion so and a, a lot of balance. So initially, yeah, balance could be a good good work, uh, a good um, start because uh, there's not a lot of load that goes through the, the body to do some balance work. I like to use wobble boards that are really beneficial. Have you been using those? I see you. Yeah. Kind of reaction to that. I've been doing, I've been standing on one of those, like uh, those basso balls. It's basically like a half uh, cylinder. Um, and you, you just see it wobbles, whatever direction you kind of lean. So um, I haven't gotten one of the actual boards, which would be a little more convenient. I think from a space standpoint, the basso ball is a little more bulky, but it's been doing yeah. the trick so far. And you'll find that those actual, um, those platforms with just the little um, semicircle underneath rather than a big BOSU ball, you'll find that's harder because it's a, it's a um, reduced base of support. Um, and you'll find that the, the ankle works a lot harder. And so you can have one foot in the middle of that wobble board, and then you can just slowly either um, tap your foot back and forth, try and make sure that you're tapping the front of the board, then the back of the board, and just slowly going through that range um, without it tilting side to side is the goal. Um, you'll find that the foot muscles really have to work hard. You'll find a lot of fatigue that's created in the foot and the calf and the Achilles. Um, so you're building slowly that load. You can also try and keep one foot on that wobble board and try and keep all sides of that board off the floor. And so you're either putting one fingertip on a wall and trying to do that or um, just freestanding and trying to maintain that that will really start to generate a lot of the intrinsic muscles of the feet and the control through that. Um, that could be really good. And then you can progress while well, there's other banded style exercises you can do um, those inversion, eversion stuff with the TheraBand. All of this is really foundation stuff, getting ready for the explosive kind of change in direction and the explosive forces that are required for running. And what we talk about is this rehab ladder. We say, okay, currently you can do TheraBand exercises. You can stand on one leg with your eyes closed. Um, you can do that quite nicely. But where we need to get you to is whatever load running, like a marathon or something. How do we bridge that gap? Okay, we need to build up the calf capacity. We need to build up the stiffness in your um, Achilles tendon. We need to build up the, the power that's produced. And so that might, the next step on that ladder might be jumping, might be skipping. It might be doing side to side jumping where you're, um, or side to side skipping where you're 
um, you hop from to the right, to the left, to the right, to the left, and you're kind of using a little bit of a change in direction, that kind of stability. Um, then we're kind of hopping for height and then we jump onto different boxes and we land down on different boxes and we um, start to challenge that way. And everywhere along this rung, everywhere up this rehab ladder, we're, challenged, we're challenging the tendons, we're challenging the ankle in a different way that's getting you closer to that goal. And so wobble board's nice, therabands, really nice, hopping, skipping, jumping, all of those could be really nice. Do all of your strength workouts in minimalist shoes or barefoot shoes or just in bare feet if you're safe about it and don't drop a weight on your foot. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to wake up those intrinsic muscles in the feet a lot more and you're going to feel a lot more strong, a lot more stable, a lot more control when it comes to actually relying on the running itself. And so, yeah, then you just follow general kind of calf principles, general, general like um, whole lower limb kinetic chain kind of principles and doing single leg squats and doing crab walks and engaging the glutes, engaging the, um, the knees, and then just working up that rehab ladder. So those can be some really nice steps if you, you haven't gone through already. So have you, have you built up to that kind of um, functional multi-joint um, purpose type of exercises? Yeah. At, the, at this point, I've been able to do what I'll do is I'll do a lot of just kind of like uh, weight. I'll do slightly weighted, just kind of like calf. I don't want to say calf raises. So I'm walking forward and kind of propulsing. I'm not jumping, um, but I'm just like, I'm pushing, I'm propelling up to the top of my toe to get that full range of motion. Cause what I noticed originally was once I was able to do any type of weight bearing stuff with it, like with my good ankle, I could push all the way up to my toes, notice no issue, but my right one, it would like get kind of halfway there. So mm -hmm. I've kind of progressed that to the point where now I can get that one up as high as my other one. Um, granted no jumping yet. Um, I've been able to stand on that basso ball. Uh, I've been able to do some one-legged squats. Uh, so perhaps I'm not progressing on the ladder properly, <laughs> but I'm doing some of that stuff at the moment. Yeah. And so there's, there's a bit of a gap between like doing calf raises and then jumping. And mm -hmm. so there's, I'm glad that you've built yourself up to like a calf raise where you can get full range because that's very important, but then you might want to start doing full range calf raises a bit more explosive, like doing a bit more tempo kind of stuff where you're slowly going down the calf raise and then coming up quite quickly. Um, that can be that bridging the gap from calf raises to jumping because then you're starting to work on the propulsion and then all you need to do is focus on the landing component. And so um, skipping is really nice when mm -hmm. it comes to uh, just doing small little skips. You're not jumping for heights. You're just doing little skips. So you're just jumping like an inch or two off the ground with two feet and then seeing how you tolerate that. That can be a really nice like next rung up the ladder. And it could be 20 seconds, see how you feel, see how you feel the next day. And if that's okay, maybe we do two rounds of 20 seconds next time. And then similar to how people are used to like a walk run program and progressing through that, mm -hmm. you can do that with skipping. So um, slowly build up your skipping tolerance. And then once you're doing a couple of minutes of skipping, then you can go to skipping single leg rather than double leg and then slowly work your way up that ladder as well. And so um, those can be some nice principles. I'm working with a, a lad at the moment who's in the uk and we're doing the same thing where he's had a big bout of like really severe shin splints and so we're getting him through a skipping program and then once he graduates from his skipping program then he's going into his 
return to run program, which is a lot of walking, a little bit of running, and then building up that way. And so that might be the kind of um, scenario you're in or like where in that rehab ladder you're at is trying to get from the calf raise to the the jumping or to that impact kind of landing. And there's there's definitely rungs within there that you can slowly work your way up. Excellent. No, this has been a, a great uh, resource so far, and I'm looking forward to releasing this one uh, to the listeners. But Brody, uh, can you share with us what the name of your new ebook that we chatted a little bit about today is? Yeah, so it's a part of my Run Smarter series, and this is volume two. And so this is how to strive for an injury-free PB. Like volume one is all about universal principles to reduce your risk of injury and overcome a current injury that you have. And we've talked about it a couple um, today. Uh, what I can do is create like a sign-up link for people if they wanted to get the ebook because um, how to strive for an injury-free PB is all about performance, how to increase your marathon performance or your ultra performance safely. Um, and if I I could just create a, a sign-up link and they can get access to not only volume two, but also volume one of those eBooks. And um, yeah, contains a, a fair few principles, universal principles that I teach in my podcast as well. But some people don't want to scroll through the 160 episodes I currently have mm-hmm. and just contains in a nice, easy to read book. Um, so yeah, I can make that available for people. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely be putting that in the show notes, a link to that as well as anywhere else folks can find you. Do you want to share with us website, social media handles or anything else that you'd want people to know where you're at? at? Um, where I want most people to go is to the podcast. So the Run Smarter podcast, um, have a listen to the first 10 episodes because um, they contain these similar universal principles. And before you start scrolling through the feed and finding episodes that, um, that really like resonate with them or what they want to learn more about. I am also active on Instagram. So at Run Smarter Series is my handle. And so I post blogs, research papers, uh, exercises, those sort of things, if people are interested in that. Awesome. Well, thanks a bunch, Brody. Uh, it's been great to have you back on the show. And uh, I have a feeling there's going to be a part three at some part down the road. <laughs> but uh, um, until then, uh, very grateful for your time and all the information you've shared with me and the listeners. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, just a quick reminder, this episode's sponsors include Inside Tracker's top-notch blood panel offerings for 25% off and Element Electrolytes free sample pack for all HPO listeners. Supporting the show sponsors through my links and codes is a great way to help keep the show free and accessible. So if any of their products interest you, head over to the links in the show notes or at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, zachbitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to zachbitter.com and let me know what you think.